0: We have begun to be calloused and indifferent to the horror of sin in the Church. Our program is Truth Encounter, and we invite you to join us as we consider the case of a believer living in such a horrible sin that even the pagans in the town were in an uproar about it. Our passage is 1 Corinthians 5. The case is a believer living in incest with his stepmother, and the Apostle Paul takes the bull by the horns and deals with the problem
1: like you to open your Bibles to 1st Corinthians 5 we want to share together about one of the most difficult portions of Scripture in many ways in all the New Testament the title of the chapter you might say would be dealing with hardened unrepentant sin in the church and 1st Corinthians 5 brings up terrible pictures maybe some terrible experiences In some of your minds, I know some of you have shared with me about maybe your father got caught drinking one beer behind the barn and the church all got together and they militantly bodily threw him out of the church. It produced a terrible stink within the community and within the church. And some of you can tell even more horrifying experiences than that. The idea of excommunication, for example, and inquisition. During the Middle Ages, the Christian church decided they were going to get rid of all the heretics. So they would go on these massive witch hunts. And many times innocent people would be brought before the bar of the church, would be tried just like you'd be tried in a secular court, and you might even lose your life. In other words, they would execute capital punishment. And so when we think about church discipline... Most of us have some horrifying stories. I was recently with some other pastors and they told me about a pastor that they have served with for many years who was just scared to death whenever you mentioned church discipline. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. He didn't want anybody confessing anything in his church. And we don't want to just get into that messy, messy area of hardened, unrepentant sin in the church. Well, as in all these areas, it's so important for us just to get back to the text. When we're studying 1 Corinthians, it's important to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and go all the way through the end of the book and not be afraid of what the Spirit might want to teach us there and to be open to what He wants to do in our midst. And the Apostle Paul was one of those rare individuals that didn't sugarcoat, didn't cover over some very difficult problems. He was willing to jump right in there and very gently but very powerfully deal with a serious problem. Let me begin and share with you what the problem was. It would be a heinous problem in our own church. The church in Corinth was the talk of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a seaport town. It was hard to shock Corinth. Guys regularly shacked up with prostitutes like they do in any seaport town from San Francisco to Miami to Boston, all right? So they weren't very shockable. The average Corinthian, in fact, to be a Corinthian meant that you involved yourself in sexual immorality. So there was a lot of that kind of sin going on. A lot of drunkenness. A lot of people, you know, just getting smashed on a regular basis every night. So Corinthians was a rough, seaport town. Hard to shock it. But Corinth was shocked. And they were shocked not about what video stores might be selling They weren't shocked necessarily about magazines that were being sold. They weren't shocked about a murder like we had in our own town. What they were shocked about was that a born-again believer, someone that used that label, that gathered together with the Corinthian church on a regular basis, this born-again believer was living in a steady, immoral relationship with his stepmother. And the text is not clear on what happened to his father, whether his father died or whether there was a divorce. It's very clear that the woman was not his blood mother. The text is clear that it's his stepmother. And the amazing thing about this is if you were a Roman, you would be horrified at that. If you were a Greek, you would be horrified at that. The amazing thing was that the church of Corinth wasn't horrified about it at all. Now, I know that many of you are horrified about it because even in my introduction to the book of Corinth, when I brought it up, some of you came up to me and said, Shh, you know, don't talk about that. And I wouldn't talk about it if it wasn't in the holy word of God. When we gather together. We need to hear what God is saying. And that's the only way that you're going to be free. And it's the only way that I'm going to be free. And so the Apostle Paul is dealing with a church who is pridefully, willfully not doing a blessed thing about a believer that's living in a hardened, unrepentant sin. This isn't a one-night stand. It's not someone that just came to know the Lord and they're wrestling with the problem of immorality and they're seeking to learn how to walk in the Spirit and they're weeping over the struggle that they're having in the sexual area. We're not dealing with that kind of a person. That kind of a person who might be you, Maybe you just came to know the Lord and a lot of those old habits have not been worked on by the Spirit yet. And you're weeping over it. You're struggling over it. We're not talking to you today. We want to encourage you today. When you come to know the Lord, you are new in Him from God's perspective. But it takes a lifetime to become totally new in Him from this world's perspective. It's not the kind of a person we're dealing with. We're dealing with an individual who might be sitting here this morning. Hopefully not, but he might be or she might be. We never know. Who's living in a blatant sin. You don't want to turn from it. You don't want to do anything about it. In fact, you're saying, I have every right to do this sin. I'm in Christ. I am living in the heavenlies. It doesn't make any difference at all what I do with my body anymore. Because I'm a spiritual person now. I've received this new life from above. And my position in Christ means that it doesn't make any difference how I live on this planet. In fact, I can even rejoice that I'm free to enjoy this immorality. Now that sounds like very twisted, perverted thinking. But that's very possibly the kind of thinking that was going on in the church of Corinth. Now the Apostle Paul breaks this chapter down into three basic areas. We're going to begin with verses 1-5. through He's going to talk about discipline. I want you to look at what I said. I said discipline, we're talking about disciplining a hardened, unrepentant believer. And Paul says that we need to discipline that individual, but I want you to notice that it's for his own preservation. It's not because our pride has been wounded. It's not to beat him to smithereens. It's not that at all. It's for his own good. Discipline, in contrast to punishment, is always for someone's good. Punishment isn't necessarily for someone's good. Discipline is a training to get somebody where they need to go. The Apostle Paul is saying in verses 1 through 5, as we'll look at in just a moment, we need to discipline this hardened, unrepentant believer for his own good. Second of all, in verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul says we need to discipline this hard and unrepentant believer for the good of the local church. If we don't do anything about this kind of a problem, if we just let it go by, then the church will become diseased. The church will become very sick. And for the good of the purity of the local church, we need to do something. Thirdly, we need to clear up a problem. It's possible that some of you feel this way yourself. In other words, you have no problem at all living with very sinful, unrepentant, far away from the Lord believers. You don't have any trouble associating with slanderous, gossiping, greedy, drunken believers. The people you don't want to have anything to do with are those unbelievers at work. Those people that never come to church the people that never read their Bible, the people that don't pray, those people you know, the people out there. You don't have any association at all out there because they'll contaminate us. We don't want to be with those people that are out there. Now that is one of Satan's biggest tricks. He gets us to feel really chummy with sinful believers and estranged from normal unbelieving sinners. The apostle Paul's gonna clear it up and I think it'll help some of you because some of you have been coming to me and saying, David, how do I live with a secular world? You know, in my job, sometimes I have to go to some places where it's kind of tough being there. And man, I have to be involved in certain business things. Not that it's illegal, but it's obviously an unbelieving setting. Should I go there and be with those unbelievers? Almost feel like you need to wash your hands. Paul's gonna warn us about becoming Pharisees. So let's look at it, verses 1 through 5, first of all. Discipline for the good of the rebellious believer. It is actually reported, Paul begins at verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you. The word he uses for sexual immorality is the big general Greek word for all kinds of sexual aberrations. Everything from fornication to homosexuality to incest would all come underneath this word. There's sexual immorality that's actually reported among you And if such a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. And that's why I started out sharing with you how the Corinthians, the unbelieving Corinthian community is horrified at what is happening. That gives us an insight of the fact that God doesn't let unbelievers be as bad as they could be. And some of you say, Dave, was God totally absent from my life when I didn't know the Lord? No, He wasn't totally absent from your life. God isn't totally absent from anybody's life. We're all made in the image of God, even before we come another Lord. And there is a good conscience inside of us. The unbelieving world out there has a pretty good handle on what's right and wrong. Not power to become right, but a good handle on what is right. And many of you that live in this secular marketplace see evidence of that. You will meet unbelievers who will be horrified at immorality. They will be horrified at a problem like that. And that was true even in this robust seafaring community of Corinth. The horrifying sin that's the scandal of Corinth is that a man has his father's wife. In other words, he's carrying on a long-term, consistent, illicit relationship with his stepmother. Now, how did the Corinthians respond? Verse 2, and you're proud of it. Now, that's very difficult to understand what he means by that. But arrogance has been the big problem. Remember we talked about the arrogance intellectually? The Corinthians had spiritualized everything and they were proud about the new wisdom they had and how eloquent their preachers could talk. And evidently this carried right over into morality. Like I mentioned earlier, they were proud of the fact that you could be in Christ, you could know Christ as your Savior, and then you could live in a terrible, blatant sin. Now, the argument goes something like this. You see, you come to know Christ, and you come to know Christ by how? By works or by, tell me, can anything ever separate you from that grace that's been found in Christ? As you receive eternal life, how long does eternal life last? Forever. So by very definition, if you receive eternal life, it's going to be in your life forever. You're not going to lose it. So that means you can live any way you want to live, right? In fact, let's sin. Because the more we sin, the darker it gets, the more God can show us his grace. You see, the more you go out there and the more you get involved in sin, the more God can shower you with grace. What do you think about that? Now, I know you don't think much of that. You all sit there pious and say, oh, no, I don't believe that. But I deal with all kinds of people. Once saved, always saved means I can live any way I want to live. That was the Corinthian problem. They divorced practical, ethical living from the power of the cross. And the error they made is, you see, if you really meet the man, the Savior, the God-man, Jesus, who died on the cross, if you really get a hold of the fact that it's because of immorality that Jesus had to hang and suffer and be separated from his Father, it was our immoral thoughts And our lying and our greed and our idolatry, that's what put Him there. You see, if you really meet a Savior like that, and you understand the depth of His sacrifice because of our sin, you can never have a flippant attitude. You can never say, oh, I don't care if I'm immoral. Who cares? I'm saved anyway. And I've had many people tell me that. I've had them look at me right in the face and say, I want to live the way I want to live. And I'll say, yeah, but the way you're living is just the opposite from the way Christ wants to, you to live. Christ hates immorality. Christ hates that lying. Christ hates that, that greed for material things that you're even willing to cheat somebody to get it. God hates that. Christ grieves over that. It's what killed him on the cross. And they'll say, I don't care. Who cares? I'm saved. i got a fire escape. I'm going to run out at the end. That's the attitude the Corinthians had, and that is arrogant pride. That is arrogant pride. The amazing thing is 1 Corinthians 5 says that a believer can get that low. Because this man is a believer. It's very clear under the inspiration of Scripture, this man did have a new spirit. He had the Holy Spirit living within him, but he had so hardened himself, and this delusion... This arrogance had come so much over his mind. And the amazing thing is that it permeated the whole church of Corinth. That they were arrogant about immorality. The Apostle Paul said, You are proud. How should they have reacted? The whole church should rather have had a mourning time. They should have all grieved. It should have broken their hearts. And I know that many of you I know that many of you can identify with that because many of you do grieve when a brother or sister is trapped in, in sin and it breaks your heart. And I've seen many of you moms cry because maybe a son or a daughter wandered away from the Lord and became ensnared in evil. And you didn't know what was happening. In fact, you knew there was a time when they really related to Christ where they voiced that they knew Christ, but then they wandered out They wandered away and they became involved in things that just tore your heart to smithereens and you wept and you mourned. And in that morning you were praying very deeply, Lord Jesus, work in their heart, bring them back. You know, the kind of thing the Apostle Paul is speaking about, it's a lot like finding out that a loved one has a very serious illness, such as a malignancy. When you find that out about a loved one, it produces a mourning in your heart, a very deep-seated grief, and a very deep-seated hatred against the malignancy, against the virus, against that disease that's beginning to, to suck the life out of your loved one. Now, you love your loved one. That's why it's so important to think of it like that. You love your loved one deeply. You care about that loved one. But that's why you hate the sin so much. Just like a doctor would hate with a passion, a a malignancy that that snuffs the life out of a patient that they love dearly. The Apostle Paul is saying, and that's the kind of an attitude the Corinthians should have had. When they found out about this believer and they saw that arrogance and they saw that pride, they should have broken down and wept and mourned over that. But instead, they did nothing. In fact, they just redefined everything and said it doesn't make any difference. We're in Christ. We're going to go home to be with the Lord in heaven. Who cares? Then the Apostle Paul says something very hard. He says you should have mourned, and then you should have put him out of your fellowship. You should have put that person out of your fellowship, the man who did this thing. Now, that's a tough one. what in the world did the Apostle Paul do this? Well, he's going to explain a little bit what he means by putting this person out of the fellowship. Let's read a little bit further. Because the Apostle Paul was one of these, he was a gentle preacher. He wasn't an eloquent preacher, but he was an incredibly powerful, spirit-controlled man. So he says in verse 3, some of you had daddies like this. He's like a very strong daddy that's dealing with some disobedient children. He says, even though I'm not physically present with you, I can almost feel him underneath saying, And you think that because I'm not present with you, I can't deal with this situation. And there's a bunch of Corinthians that are against him. In fact, much of Corinth we've been learning is to counteract the authority of the Apostle Paul. And here he reasserts his apostolic authority. Even though I'm not physically present with you, I am with you in spirit. Now that's a tough one. What does he mean by that? One thing the Apostle Paul might mean is kind of like we say, well, you're, I'm with you in my thoughts. You ever say that? You know, you write a love letter and said, I'm not with you now, but my heart is present with you. Kind of like the song, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. Right? What does that mean? You know, if only in my dreams. I'm not going to be physically there, but my heart, my thoughts. And then we might say my spirit. The Apostle Paul might mean that. But there's a little bit more umph in this right here. You see, the Apostle Paul believed that the Holy Spirit dwelled in the hearts of his people. He believed, according to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, that we've been all baptized by one spirit. And so as you sit there today, in fact, this is true in our own midst. Many of you know Christ as your Savior. That means the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart. In one sense, because the Holy Spirit dwelled in your heart and the Holy Spirit dwells in my heart. If you are a believer, as we share together, that spirit ministers to both of us. He speaks to both of us. And so in that sense, the Holy Spirit's not limited by space. He's not limited by location. And so he can be with the Corinthians and he can be with Paul. And because of this family unity in the spirit, Paul can say, even though I'm not with you physically, I am with you spiritually. And that Holy Spirit that ministers through me is powerfully present. And that apostolic authority that the spirit ministers is present. What does the Apostle Paul say they should do? And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this thing, just as if I were there present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, And that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, would mean that we assemble under the authority of the name of Christ. I want you to notice that we're not talking about a group of elders, a group of ecclesiastical leaders. We're not talking about a group of reverends that get together. I want you to see in this Corinthian context the part that the whole body of Christ plays. You see, in our Christian lives, we many times want to put things over on a priest or the minister, or the rabbi, or a group of spiritual leaders. The Lord does give us gifted individuals within our family. He does give give us those that are gifted to teach. He does give us those that are gifted in evangelism. But the Holy Spirit ministers to each and every one of you. And we are gathered together in the name of Jesus. What gives us the freedom to sing worthy is the Lamb? Because we are gathered in the name, in the person, under the authority, under the character of the living Christ. That should mean a great deal to you. You see, that's why gathering together and meeting together as a group of believers is so important. Because we gather together in the name. And there, it's a, the time of gathering is a very special, you might say, a very special concentrated time of the power of God working in our lives for encouragement, for conviction, for support. Paul says, when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Paul really believes in the immediacy of the presence of God among his people. One thing I'd like us to learn, many churches have a tendency... To think of God as being very distant today. In other words, when you think of singing, for example, you think of singing about God. In fact, a lot of the imagery that many of you have is that God is way up there in heaven. And He is. He's high and lifted up. But you think of Him as being very distant. And you think of Him not having much immediacy. I want you to see how different Paul taught the Corinthians. He's saying when believers gather together, and this hasn't changed in 1900 years because Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So Paul is saying when you gather as believers, you're gathered in His name. And the power of Jesus will be among you. That's why some of you have been born again. Even while we've been teaching the Word, some of you have been born again. And some of you can tell me, I was hearing... And all of a sudden, I understood the cross. I'd heard the story of the cross over and over again. But all of a sudden, while I was sitting there, I understood it. And I opened my heart to receive it. That's the power of Jesus moving among you.
0: The power of Jesus might be moving in your heart at this time. Is He speaking to you about the need to personally trust Him for your eternal destiny? Is He convicting you about a pet sin you need to stop? Is He quietly asking you to go and talk face to face with a brother or sister that you have sinned against? Let's pray that all of us will have tender hearts toward the quiet voice of Jesus in our lives constant rebellious resistance. That is the danger zone we need to avoid.